If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Santa Claus parades this weekend. Everything's this weekend. Uh, so uh, get out uh, and enjoy what is going on. And what is going on? Well, uh, the great news is the HSR strike is over. About 2 o'clock this morning, they came to uh, a, a deal, a tentative deal of some sort. Still has to be ratified. Don't know many, many of the details, but we do know uh, that that should make getting around uh, the hammer a little easier this weekend, especially with the influx of visitors that are coming in uh, for the various events that are going on. So good news, HSR and the city have uh, agreed to a tentative agreement and should see uh, things moving again uh, shortly, which is, uh, yes, take a bow. Good work. Good to see and also the other big case, which, uh, you know, uh, you know, I think we sort of knew what the outcome would be here, but uh, it is official. Nathan, uh, Nathaniel Veltman found guilty of first-degree murder in the historic London, Ontario attack. A jury reached the decision, uh, accused of deliberately running over a Muslim family in London in what the Crown had argued was a act of terrorism. After less than six hours of deliberation, jurors returned to a packed courtroom Thursday afternoon to deliver their verdict guilty on four counts of first-degree murder murder and one account of attempted murder. So uh, there you have it. That has uh, come to an end and people can now move on with their lives now. Uh, the Prime Minister at tab- uh, attending the APEC Summit uh, down on the San Francisco Bay area. Uh, JT finding himself, uh, is finding himself on the out looking in uh, as it appears he's divided and conquered himself uh, right out of the discussion and having a hard time finding allies uh, when he seems to have ticked off pretty much every Everybody uh, in the world. Uh, what else we got going on? Pro-Palestinian protests uh, closed down the Montreal Bridge this morning for an hour and a half. Uh, many are calling it the Freedom Convoy of the Extreme Left. Uh, there you go. So uh, that continues uh, as uh, people continue to debate. And no matter what the Prime Minister does, he seems to find himself out on um, on the wrong on the wrong side of right, whatever that is. All right. Uh, hope you jump into the fun and take advantage of what's going on in the hammer over the course of the weekend. The Spirit of Edmonton has come to town. We're going to talk to their chairman of the Spirit of Edmonton. What is this all about and uh, how they take over every Grey Cup that they uh, attend, which is pretty much every one of them uh, from coast to coast. So we'll talk to that uh, them coming up sh- uh, very shortly this hour. Also, food prices continue to climb, record profits, what happened to the government intervention, and uh, the parade of shame with all the CEOs. Um, uh, we'll find out when we talk to Ian Lee uh, from Sprott School of Business at uh, Carleton University a little later on this hour. Small and independent business have concerns about stacking up against Amazon's power imbalance. I mean, obviously... You saw this with things like Walmart. Is it any different? Uh, except it's online and uh, just the buying power that uh, these companies have just uh, it takes a little guy right out of uh, the situation. So we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, the verdict uh, with a report from Global News out of Windsor to uh, sum up what has happened. And uh, we're going to talk to Professor Steve Jordans. We've talked to several times, Psychology University of Toronto. And um, uh, there's a talk. It's talk to a stranger week. 
and or it's coming up and should you get into the habit of talking to strangers because you know if you're raised as a kid especially nowadays don't talk to anybody don't look at anybody don't you know because you never know what kind of you know hell child you'll you'll meet on the other side um but despite what everybody has said and what our parents have taught us is it important to talk to people including people you don't know to educate yourself empower and um and and learn something and what have we given up especially in a post-pandemic world by keeping to ourselves per se uh we'll talk about that coming up a little later on also uh the prime minister will sit down today with one on meeting uh one-on-one meetings with some uh pacific rim leaders uh none of the big ones but we'll talk about what he has got uh a plan coming up uh, shortly as well and uh canadian foreign policy and how our government is handling its response to the israeli hamas conflict many are saying that the prime minister is reacting to uh you know, just the um, uh, division within his own party. And, you know, he's sort of getting pulled from both sides within his own party. And there's some struggles there as he's taken the once great center-left party and taking it to the extreme left. And now he's dealing with some of those extreme uh, individuals on the left now. And how does he balance all of that, especially when he's speaking up in the world stage after being uh, pretty much slapped down by uh, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, the other day for his comments about uh, the prime minister's comments about restraint and such. So uh, interesting point to which we have reached. We'll talk about that all coming up over the course of Hamilton today. I think every Grey Cup since the early 70s, uh, the spirit of Edmonton party has come to town and it kicks off today at four o'clock. And what is this? What is it about? And how do you be a part of it? Uh, Jerry Haraxi is with us, chairman of Spirit of Edmonton and here now. Jerry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Scott, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate your time. So, Jerry, to those that may not know, may not be plugged into what the spirit of Edmonton is all all about, give us a bit of backstory. Tell us tell us the story. So, it, it, we all started in 1974 in a hotel room. I think we were in Vancouver at the time. It might have been Calgary. It was before my time, and uh, and and there was just a bunch of Edmontonians having a good time. And when security knocked on the door, they said, "You need to shut it down." And somebody yelled, "You can't shut us down. We're the spirit of Edmonton." And the name stuck. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are, 49 years later, hundreds of thousands of people uh, that have come through our rooms over the last 49 years, and uh, we're still rocking and entertaining uh, CFL fans from right across the country. And they still can't shut you down. So how has this expanded from, you know, some Grey Cup party goers uh, from Edmonton in a hotel room to what it is now? How did it evolve? You know, it's uh, it's just, I think I think our success lies in the fact that we're, so we're a volunteer organization. We're not affiliated with the football team in Edmonton, although it's a it's, it's a passion of ours to represent the city and the football team. But there's uh, 14 of us here today that have taken time away from our families. We're on vacation and we're working and we love entertaining CFL fans. So whether you're wearing green or gold or the black and gold of the Ticats or even red and white from Calgary, our, our favorite, <laughs> we uh, we invite everybody into the room and people have so much fun. It's just to see... Canadians come together one time a year. Then nothing does it better than Grey Cup, Grey Cup weekend to bring Canadians together. And uh, it's just a great time. And we love hosting and uh, providing the fun for, for all Canadians and all CFL fans. Over and above uh, the spirit of Edmonton and the Grey Cup and such, what does this do for the city in promoting it? Well, you know, <laughs> we do. I, I'm laughing because 
the city doesn't recognize us like I think they should for the amount that we do for the city of Edmonton. But, you know, whatever. We love doing what we do. We're passionate Edmontonians and Edmonton Elk football fans and, uh, and more CFL fans. You know, that's what we want to see where we see the success. And um, like I say, it's just a, it's a, a love of bringing people together and being the reason why they can have fun uh, and all Canadians. So how do you explain, Jerry, that this keeps going year after year after year? It's a group of people that uh, just keeps this this thing alive. Every time you go to a Grey Cup festival, you're going to see the spirit of Edmonton. Yeah, and, you know, the, the CFL, I'm, I'm going to be as humble as I can here. The CFL is doing a great job of copying what we've done for 49 years. They, they're putting on a tremendous festival. There's, and only in Canada this can happen, where there's nine CFL teams, but there's 10 CFL team rooms with the Halifax Schooners having a room here, too. You know, mm. so... Um, you know, I love the fact that all teams have now come on board and it's probably the last 10 years now where it's not just the spirit of Edmonton, where there were times where we were, we were the only show in town at festival. There was nothing else. And, um, I think people understand, you know, the CFL fan is a special person. They understand the strength and the weaknesses of the league. And they all know that we're here as volunteers, you know, nobody's getting a paycheck for this week. We're, we're having fun. And I think people appreciate that. And that's what makes our room so special. So talk about, first of all, talk about where this is happening and what people can expect when they walk through the door. So we are, what time are we right now? Uh, we're 35 minutes away from opening, 4 o'clock. Yeah. We're at Bridgeworks Event Studio, 200 Caroline Street. Uh, just, um, I'm not sure of my directions, but we're just outside of downtown. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an easy walk from the festival site. And 4 o'clock, we have uh, Hamilton's own Born in the 80s on stage. And they're going to be rocking till about 7.30. And then we have another great band from Hamilton. Uh, fiddlesticks they're going to be uh, hitting the stage and then we brought tall boy from edmonton and they're closing the show tonight and they'll be on at about 9 30 and go till 12 30 so to say what's this room like what is the spirit of edmonton like what is it like when people walk through the door it's uh you're, you're welcomed by you know a couple of people at our at our desk uh saying hi that you can you pick up your beer tokens and uh you just <laughs> go in and enjoy yourself and the nice part about the Thursday night is this is the first time in really a couple of years where we'd be able to have, um, you know, a huge great cop festival. Regina did a great job last year as well. Yeah. But, you know, Hamilton kind of, you know, you kind of got the short end of the deal two years ago when the CFL pulled the festival. And so when you come into our room, you know, you're going to see just a ton of people having fun. And like I said, the, the best part about it is until kickoff on Sunday, you're going to see Winnipeg Blue Bomber fans and Montreal Alouette fans partying together until kickoff, and then, then the rivalry begins. <laughs> so obviously not your first rodeo, Jerry. How does this one stack up so far, or at least what it's scheduled to be? You know, this one is, is actually a little bit easier because I was here two years ago. Uh, we were one of the only team parties that um, made the commitment to come to Hamilton two years ago. So I've made a lot of really good friends here. And, you know, I've said it before in other interviews that the, the people in Hamilton and the people in Edmonton are very similar, where we work hard for our money and we know how to spend it wisely. And, you know, Great Cup Festival is a great way to come down, spend some money and have some fun with your friends and meet new friends. And tonight is really kind of a homecoming night where people haven't seen each other for a year and they're just uh, excited to see each other. And they always meet at the Spirit of Edmonton on Thursday night. Jerry Haraxi with us, chairman of the Spirit of Edmonton. The template has now been used and everybody's jumping in and doing the same thing that these people have uh, kept the spirit alive since uh, the mid-1970s. They're at Bridgeworks uh, throughout the course of the festival. Jerry, thanks so much for coming to town. Much appreciated. Enjoy the party and uh, good luck. Scott, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the time and your time. And I tell you, if you get a chance to come on down, we're open every day, Thursday, Friday, Saturday at 4 o'clock. Live entertainment, cheer teams, we got it all going on right through till about 1 in the morning every night.
All right, there you have it, Spirit of Edmonton in town, and there's lots of spirit coming to town over the course of the weekend. Get out and enjoy. Uh, There's lots going on, even if you don't have tickets to the big game. All right, uh, articles uh, started appearing yesterday about record profits of grocers. Uh, The Globe and Mail, the headline reads, Loblaw and Metro report higher sales, quarterly profits as they face scrutiny over uh, price inflation. Um, Is this about prices or about profits? Uh, we remember it wasn't that long ago that uh, the federal government paraded the CEOs of grocers, uh, the parade of shame, uh, and that you know somehow this was going to change things. Uh, but again, are we talking prices or profits here? Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and here now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks, Scott. How are grocery prices now compared to what they were? Have they stabilized? Will they ever go down? Um, if you're talking prices, not profits, we're talking prices. Um, I doubt that we'll see prices of um, a- any major products go down across the economy. I mean, because that becomes the new baseline on which wages are based and 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 costs of all the inputs. Uh, what the government just simply doesn't understand, and it doesn't understand, is that every business uh, has. I teach this. I've been teaching this for 35 years. Uh, that every business has buys inputs from other businesses. And of course, they have wages. Every employer, I don't know of any company that doesn't have wages and workers. So if you're going to talk about regulating the prices of something, you've got to talk about regulating the wages. But the government's not talking about that. They're they're pretending that you can somehow control the prices and without going after the inputs called the, the, the food producers or the farmers, because every business is connected to all the other businesses in the economy. And, and so this is why wage and price controls have always failed. They failed because, you know, if you're going to introduce uh, uh, controls, you got to do it across the board to everybody and everything, every salary, every paycheck, every job, every manufacturer, upstream, midstream, downstream, electricity prices, taxes, because they're part of the cost structure. And... And so for that reason, people shy away. You know, they say, no, 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 I don't want my income regulated. No, 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 no. I want to continue to get three, four, five, or six percent, but I want the other guy. And and this is why it's a failure and uh, why it has failed. And in, in this instance, what's even more ironic, uh, Scott, is that, and I've, I, I follow this industry very closely. In fact, this term, I have two students' uh, groups. One just did law laws and presented yesterday, and the other's doing Metro next week. And they have to get the financial statements and drill down and look at it very carefully. Their profits are running in this industry, as they always have for literally 50, 70 years. They're running around 3.2% net profit margin. I just bought a GIC at the bank for 5%. And the GIC is guaranteed by the government of Canada through uh, through the Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation. And and they're, they're claiming... I even would use the word hysterically that the 3.2 is outrageous and it's extraordinary. It's it's very low compared to most industries in Canada. Most industries, most companies in most industries make much more than 3.2. The grocery industry is notoriously a low profit margin industry, has been literally all my lifetime in both Canada and the States. And right now they're running around 3.2, 3.5% net profit margin, which as I said, is lower than a GIC, which is a guaranteed bank deposit with zero risk. And there's always risk in business, 
riskier customers don't like your products, won't buy the products and so forth. So typically the rate of return in an industry and in a business is much higher than a bank deposit rate. And yet the rates are so poor, the profitability of groceries is so poor, they're below the rate a, a Canadian can get on a, on a $1,000 GIC at the bank. What uh, what about the government intervention that happened? Uh, headlines out of CTV, uh, price freezes, discounts on pantry items among grocery st- uh, stabilization efforts coming soon, says the minister. Yeah, it's, it's truly, it's either he's extraordinarily naive and uneducated about this. I'm, I'm skeptical because I think he was a professor of economics. I think I'm not certain of that. Um, or he's just doing it as political propaganda. And I say that, let me again drive home this point. Okay, there's thousands of products on the shelves in every grocery store, and they source these products from hundreds of suppliers. But Mr. Champagne and Mr. Trudeau are not saying, well, we're going to go and regulate the prices of Maple Leaf Foods and all the companies, Campbell's Soup, and all the companies that make all the products that are sold to the grocery store chains. The grocery store chain is a retailer. And all retailers buy their inputs from upstream suppliers that are independent companies. And then they have thousands and thousands and thousands of workers. But they're not talking about regulating the price of all the thousands of inputs. And they're not talking about regulating the wages. So if you're not regulating all the things you're buying that you're putting on the shelf, because Loblaws and Metro and Sobeys do not make any food at all. So if you're not going to regulate any of the inputs and you're not going to regulate the wages, it is truly meaningless to talk about regulating the prices of the grocery store. It's what literally about comp- meaningless unless they're telling, unless in code they're saying to grow to these companies, go cut the wages of the workers. Now, maybe they, they, the liberal government has a hidden agenda there. I don't know. They haven't told us how they're supposed to freeze the prices if the inputs are going up five, six, seven, eight percent. Why not more competition? Would that help? I believed all my life uh, for 300 years. Not my, I'm not around 300 years. In economics, we believed for 300 years since Adam Smith till now that more competition is the only long-term successful antidote for to rein in, if we believe there's excess profit making in a particular industry, the solution has always been to uh, open up the doors to more competition. The problem is that this government and past government, so I don't people don't think I'm just hitting the liberals, have in many industries tried to suppress competition by restricting entry. Just think of supply management that restricts the number of people and licenses to produce those those foods. Just think of the airline industry where we would not allow a foreign airline to come into Canada and run an airline. Think of the telecom industry and in grocery retailing. You know, the the, uh, the competition bureau, a board, excuse me, said, you know, they bemoaned in their last report the fact that the industry, grocery retailing, had become very concentrated. That's the technical term for meaning fewer and fewer competitors. And when I read that, I just about exploded. My head just about exploded. Who, what agency in Canada has been approving all the mergers and all the acquisitions of the smaller grocery stores for the last 25 years. Why? It's the Competition Bureau of Canada. So the Competition Bureau was saying this, we are really angry and upset about this concentration that has occurred because we have been approving all of these mergers and acquisitions. Hmm. That's what they're saying. So yes, more competition, but I don't believe, there's no evidence that this government believes that. 
if you look at their policies over the last eight years, they have increasingly restricted access to the Canadian markets. You know, we've made it more difficult for companies to enter, whether foreign or domestic. I don't see any evidence that they believe in competition. I mean, look at the battery decision. Instead of letting companies compete to build that plant, the government stepped in and said, we're going to make the decision. Forget the competition. So you look at their actions, what they're doing, not what they're saying. I understand they're saying lots of wonderful, gauzy things. But when you look at what they're doing, their policy decisions are not uh, increasing or enhancing or encouraging competition. Their policy decisions and choices and frameworks are diminishing competition. So we've met, you know, Pogo, we have met the enemy, and it is mm. us. Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, food prices and profits at the grocery stores. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Canadian small and medium-sized businesses that sell their products on Amazon say the e-commerce giant has created an imbalance of power that puts them at a disadvantage, according to a new report. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business also found a majority of its members don't use Amazon services, are having a harder time competing with the company and other large digital retailers, particularly as Canadian consumers continue to prioritize online shopping over brick-and-mortar stores. To talk more about all of this and how we move forward, uh, Michelle Auger with us, Canadian Federation Independent Business Senior Policy Analyst and author of the report on Amazon and here now. Michelle, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Great. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, it's obvious that there's going to be, uh, you know, uh, a difference between Amazon and small business simply because of the size and and uh, the footprint and, and distribution and such and buying power. But what about uh, small and independent businesses, medium businesses that want to actually do business with Amazon? What is that like? Right. So, you know, getting... Getting online and getting on the online marketplace is is really hard for a lot of businesses. And so when they're they're looking to set up online profiles with with Amazon, it often is sort of like a last resort for many of our members because it's kind of the only way um, to essentially reach customers within the digital digital economy because Amazon is is like is basically a gatekeeper to the online world. Um, so small businesses turn to um, the marketplace platform, set up profiles, um, and essentially are able to sort of access the customers that already exist um, through Amazon. But, you know, some of the things our members have been telling us is that although they're on Amazon and they're doing business there, you know, it, it, it's really hard for them to make a profit because of some of the business practices um, that Amazon uses um, with their online platform. Uh, is that simply the buying power being just such a huge distributor? Well, it's kind of it. Yeah, they're because they really do use their market dominance um, yeah. as the gatekeeper to the online world. You know they're able to dictate dictate the terms of business, um, and so our members have told us that you know things from confusing fee structures for accessing the platform, um, you know concerns over where their business listing finds itself, you know w within the rankings of the Amazon pages, and 
how Amazon is using their data, they're able to sort of dictate how all of that is being used. Um, and it, it essentially makes it really hard for small business owners to make, you know, a profit. Uh, obviously, I guess if you can't beat them, join them. Um, what can Amazon do to make it better? Is it in their interest to make it better for or easier for small business? Sure. I mean, listen, we we realize that you know small business do play a role in all this as well. But the report highlights the need for the federal government to also get involved in this. Um, you know, this situation that our members are talking about is not unique to Canada. Um, the EU and the United States have already proposed some legislation that would essentially um, prevent those large online platforms such as Amazon from using their market dominance to harm um, smaller retailers. Um you know, so we we are kind of advocating for the government to to put in place some measures that would help level out the playing field for small businesses. But in addition to that, you know, it's it's not just uh, it's it, it's it's also Amazon coming and playing a little bit more fair and to build that relationship with small businesses. So some of the recommendations out of the report are also targeted to Amazon. So things like, you know, ensuring more transparency around the algorithms that they use and provide clear guidelines for small businesses on how they can optimize their listings are among some of the recommendations made throughout. It's almost as if you're uh, asking or what's needed here is a small business arm of Amazon or a site that caters to small biz. Is there a, is there a market for that? Right. So they, they do kind of have that platform already, and that's what our members are using. It's called the, the Marketplace, Amazon Marketplace. And um, there are some tools in there that help small businesses, but it just doesn't seem to do enough to help small businesses compete within the online world. And that's essentially what the report is is highlighting, is the need for a bit of a reform there and ensure that there is a fairer structure for businesses to be able to sell online and find consumers. Is Amazon listening? We sure hope so. We really just hope that, you know, um, in the relationship with small businesses, uh, they're listening to it and they're hearing the feedback. Um, but, yeah, we're also asking consumers to get out there and do their part in this as well because we, we realize, you know, everyone is shifting towards online shopping. There's been a shift, right? And, as you're approaching holiday season shopping, we're just asking consumers to make an effort and just seek out those small businesses. Even if it's on the Amazon uh, marketplace, you can add those filters and look for those mom and pop shops that are selling there. Michelle O'Shea yeah. with us, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Senior Policy Analyst and author of the report on Amazon and how small and independent businesses compete with the juggernaut. Michelle, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. A jury in Windsor has reached a decision in the landmark trial of Nathaniel Veltman, accused of deliberately running over a Muslim family in London in what the Crown had argued was an act of terrorism. To talk more about all of this, Ben Haritha is with us, reporting for Global News from Windsor and and here now. Ben, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, yeah. Uh, no problem. Ben, t- take us back to the courtroom. What was it like in that courtroom today? 
Yeah, so it was a uh, it was a pretty packed courtroom. I've been down uh, down in Windsor for uh, the past two days, uh, just catching the kind of the end of the trial. And that first day, uh, the courtroom had uh, had a good amount of people in it, but it wasn't as full as it was today. Today was pretty much a standing room only uh, after a certain point. Uh, and as the verdict was uh, was being announced, I swear you could hear a pin drop. It was it was absolutely uh, absolutely quiet. Everyone was holding their breath, almost in anticipation. And uh, as soon as the first um, the first conviction, the first verdict was uh, was uh, read for one of the uh, murder charges, it was like a sigh of relief and catharsis just went right through uh, the crowd in the courtroom. And I'm guessing the same as the rest were read out as well. A, a sigh of relief. Yes. Yeah. The the main one was as soon as the the the, the first charge was read out and mm. they, that they can that I, they had agreed that uh, Veltman was guilty on uh, uh, on one of the murder charges. But as as they continued to kind of come through, people started to get emotional, started to cry, hug each other, uh, and it was a it was a very uh, a very emotional scene uh, in that courtroom today. Uh, bringing in the act of terrorism and, and that element of this trial, how did it complicate things? How did it play out? So, yeah, the, the terrorism uh, part of the trial, uh, it complicated in, in the way of the jury could have approached the, uh, the first-degree murder charges in two different ways. One of them was they could have uh, all agreed that Veltman had planned and deliberate, deliberated on the attack, uh, which would have made it first-degree murder, or it could have been ter- a terrorist act which would have made it first degree murder as well. Now it's in the hands of uh, Justice uh, Renee Pomerantz to, uh, I guess, figure out if she thinks it's an act of terrorism when it comes to the uh, the sentencing, whenever that happens. What about the demeanor of the accused? Uh, what was that like, especially during the verdict being read? Yeah, so he's been pretty unemotional the entire trial, and uh, that didn't change today. As the verdict was being read, he... He was standing, uh, you know, his hands kind of uh, crossed in front of him, uh, and he was just staring ahead blankly, no emotion on the face. Um, Although we did hear from his lawyer afterwards when he was speaking to the media that uh, he was uh, a little bit in a a state of shock, which uh, you can't blame him for that. It's got to be hearing that you're going to jail for the rest of your life has to be a very, uh, very shocking thing to anyone. And five to six hours of deliberation. Uh, how are people viewing that? Um, longer than usual, perhaps, uh, you know, in what seemed to be quite a cut and dry case. Uh, what, what about the reaction to the deliberation time? I know uh, amongst the people I spoke with, people people thought that that was about a, a good amount. It seems the Crown, um, to, to put it bluntly, sort of had a slam dunk of a case here. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, five to six hours, most folks were guessing that we were going to get a, uh, a verdict shortly around in the early afternoon, which is exactly what happened. So it, it, uh, the five to six hour time was, is, was about what people expected. Uh, and obviously this taking place in, uh, in Windsor, I understand that, uh, the sentencing will be back in London. Is that accurate? Yes. So they have another, uh, sort of like, uh, legal arguments trial to set out the sentencing date. And then the sentencing itself, the family has requested that it be held in London so that they can be present. Um, so, uh, yes, whenever we have a date for the sentencing, it'll be held at the London courthouse as opposed to the Windsor courthouse.
And a reaction to those um, family members in in the courthouse, um, what it must be like for the families to be there and have to go through all of this. Yeah. So, like I said, you know, shortly after the uh, the verdict was read, uh, once all of the rest of the, uh, I guess, legal proceedings were taken care of and court was officially adjourned, people were uh, much more visibly emotional, especially uh, people who were friends or uh, friends of the family or part of the extended family. Uh, the mother of uh, one of the victims, uh, Medea, she spoke. She gave a statement talking about how, uh, you know, this was. Uh, this is justice served. This is going to be a big step in um, in healing the community. She thanked uh, not just the Muslim community in London, but all commu- like the entire community in London, because she said they all came together uh, to help support each other uh, in the two years since uh, since the attack. Van Haritha with us reporting for Global News from Windsor. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this and the jury reaching a decision in the trial. Uh, Nathaniel Veltman accused deliberately running over a Muslim family guilty on all four counts, first degree murder and one count of attempted murder. Ben, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, You too. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Next week, you get a head start, is it Talk to Stranger Week? Make a habit of it. Despite what your parents might have told you, it's Talk to Stranger Week, a campaign from Genwell that is intended to educate and empower Canadians about the many benefits of talking to strangers, to talk about it. Steve Jordan's with us, Professor of Psychology, University of Toronto, and here now. Steve, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, you too, Scott. Great to be with you again. I know, you know, the first obvious question we've been hearing uh, for years, don't talk to strangers. Now, all of a sudden, we're supposed to talk to strangers. And has what does the pandemic or a post-pandemic world have to do with all of this? Yeah, yeah. Our mums have been lying to us for all these years. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, really, it's it's been a, there's been a progression even pre-pandemic where we were seeing increases in loneliness and people kind of drifting into more isolated lives. But with the pandemic, we also got that sort of lack of civility that we're all so familiar with now, where people are so willing to you know, get into disputes over, over various issues. And really, you know, when we try to think, what can we do about it? What's the, what's the way to make things better? The answer from psychology is pretty clear. Um, the antidote to all this is something we call social connection, literally getting people to spend more time talking to one another in civil ways um, and talking about stuff they agree on perhaps. And, and that's the, the glue that we need to kind of fix some of the, the damage that's been done lately. Good point. Find the common denominator rather than what divides us. Why don't we want to talk to strangers? Yeah, well, there, there's this thing called fear of negative evaluation, and it turns out we overblow it in our minds. So we have the sense that if we just reach out and talk to somebody, they're not going to be happy about it. And, and if we ask people, you know, how likely do you think that is that it'll turn out badly? They say about 90%. Um, when we actually then ask people to do it, and there's a study by somebody named Nick Epley that did this, what they find is that it turns out positive about 90% of the time for both individuals. Most of the time, people are happy to have somebody reach out and chat with them. Uh, but we carry around this, this over-pessimistic view, uh, and the only way to really kind of get past it is to try it. And that's what mm. Talk to Strangers Week is all about, trying to kind of give people permission and, and you know, to push them a little bit to 
you know, that person, not, not the stranger in the dark, dark alley, of course, but that yeah. person that you maybe see on the bus or the train or the neighbor five doors down or something like that, the people you kind of run into, but don't take the time to say a word to maybe take the time next week and see how it goes. Uh, don't we talk to strangers all the time on social media, just not face to face? Yeah, and, and that's a big difference, actually, because um, when you look at face-to-face communication, only it's less than 10% of the information exchanged is the words, and, and a lot more comes from the nonverbals. Now, we have nonverbals in our voice now, so you don't have to be face-to-face to have nonverbals, but over 50% of them are from the body. And when you're talking to somebody face-to-face, that's where the emotional connection comes from. That's what tells you they think you're interesting or funny or attractive or whatnot. Uh, And that's where you actually form the bonds. When you sense that you're sharing an emotional state with another individual, that's what connects you. You know, think of people who went to war together and have shared horrible emotional states and they become connected for their lifetime. This is the real way that connection happens and it happens best in a face-to-face kind of situation. I noticed during the pandemic, everybody was out going for walks or taking their pets for a walk or or what have you. Um, But, you know, then you started to see people go to the other side of the street because that was an excuse. You know, we had to stay away from each other and all that sort of thing. But you can tell by the body language of people walking towards you whether they want anything to do with you or not, because people will look for the opportunity to make eye contact or they won't make any eye contact whatsoever. Right. And, and, I, and I think that's one of the things I like to say to people for next week. Like we're really pushing people to try to initiate conversations. But if you're not comfortable with that, maybe at least allow others to initiate with you. And, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, rather than taking out your cell phone and staring at it while you're on the subway, which is basically like the cone of silence from the old <laughs> Maxwell Smart days, um, you know, rather than kind of creating a little cocoon around yourself, maybe keep that phone in your pocket, keep your head up and kind of let your eyes wander from individual to individual. And if there's, you know, somebody who looks potentially interested in talking to you, maybe they've heard this radio show. If you're looking at them and seem to be willing to invite it, you don't necessarily have to start the conversation. Just don't put up the shields. Uh, And we all put up the shields all the time. And if there was a week when we just dropped the shields a little bit and we're open, even that might show us that, hey, if I invite this People will talk to me and it feels really good when they do. And that's what this week is all about. It it carries from the research of someone named Jillian Sandstrom from the UK who really pushed people to talk to strangers in one group. She pushed them to talk to strangers for a week um, and they found it uncomfortable, et cetera. They had a sort of a a nice scavenger hunt kind of approach to convince people to do it. But after those Uh, people who had engaged with strangers for a week reported all this positivity and said, you know, I'm going to continue this um, going forward. But it really took that effort to really get them to engage in it and realize their misconceptions were incorrect. And so that's really what we hope will happen uh, on a grander scale in Canada next week. How much is the phone the root of this problem? I remember many years ago talking about going uh, to a restaurant at Christmas and there next to me a whole pile of family members. They looked like a dozen of them. And and this was just when phones were taken off and they were all looking at their phone. I remember looking over thinking how strange that was. But now that's a normal occurrence. It happens yeah. all the time where you see a group of people and they're all looking down at their phone. How much has that played into all Yeah, this? I call them digital zombies to some extent. But but yeah, the zombie apocalypse is here. Um, it 
it, it plays a, a couple of roles. First of all, in the development of this fear of negative evaluation, because so many people only communicate or primarily communicate with text messages, which contain very few nonverbals, yeah. they start to find it really intimidating to be in a situation where they're face-to-face real time. So first of all, they've lacked the practice that many of us have in those situations, and that makes them more scary. But as you're suggesting, they've also learned this strategy. And, and there's an interesting video that shows outside of a classroom, I think in the 1980s, where a bunch of students had to wait to get into the classroom. And what they naturally did was started talking to one another while they're waiting outside. With another video, same scenario 30 years later. And what you see is that they all pull out their phones and stare yeah. at them. And, and I had a yeah. nephew who I was ta- talking about this once and he said, oh yeah, yeah, I did it too. And I didn't even care what was on the phone. I wasn't really being pulled by the phone. I was yeah. using the phone as a tool yeah. to kind of tell other people to leave me alone. Uh, and it became that sort of cone of silence. And that's what it seems to be now. And, you know, that's why one of the first steps that we'll always say is just put your phone in your pocket. Or, or there's this little button called off. It can be off for a while. <laughs> Try turning it off during your commute and see how that changes the commute. I grew up in a small town and everybody used to say hi to everybody because you know, you know, whether they knew them or not, that was just the way it was. That's how I was taught. I now do it in my neighborhood, uh, but I do it to make people fi- feel uncomfortable, which isn't right, Steve. But it's like, if you're not going to talk to me, I'm going to make a point of talking to you. Hey, good afternoon, sir. Good to see you. Whatever. And then this, they'll either yep. give you a nod back and be surprised or they'll just keep going forward. But, you know, it's kind of turned into a game for me. We do the same. My wife and I do the same. We, we, we talk about winning people over. How many times do you have to say hello before? They will melt. Most people yeah. <laughs> at some point, if you see them day after day, they'll start to acknowledge you at some point and, and you have to thought. But that just shows you kind of how thick you know our, our sort yeah. of shields have become in some cases. And uh, so keep doing that. Keep saying hi to people. Keep giving them that smile. You know, it's, it's just a really, we really have to reattach with our humanity. The fact that we're just a bunch of human beings trying to get through a challenging life together. And the more we can kind of connect at that level, the the less all of this other crap will really weigh on us. Well said. Steve Jordan's with us, Professor of Psychology, University of Toronto. Next week, talk to a stranger week. Uh, put the phone down, look up. Uh, thanks, Steve. As always, be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. As you know, the APEC uh, sessions are on now in the San Francisco Bay Area. The big news yesterday uh, was uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party uh, and uh, leaders and U.S. leaders, including President Biden, uh, sitting down and declaring that there's room for both on the planet, which is great to hear, and uh, military contacts set up. Uh, our Prime Minister is sort of on the outs looking in with a lot of these uh, discussions simply because um, not a part of them or uh, has uh, arguments or, or disagreements going on with uh, two of the main players being China and India. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell Lurie Institute. And here now, Charles, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. It's good to speak with you. So, Charles, the Prime Minister is there because he's the leader of the country. Uh, that being said, he doesn't seem to be involved in a lot of the really high-profile meetings or organizations. Where does the Prime Minister fit in here, and, and who is he going to be hobnobbing with? I don't think he'll be hobnobbing with anybody very much, to be frank about it. You know, the situation is that we've got bad relations with India because of the Prime Minister's allegation that the Indian government were behind a mob land hit of a of a Sikh um, uh, independentist element some time ago last June. 
and uh, relations with China are, are also very bad. Um, mm-hmm. We, you know, are not pulling our weight with regard to the defense of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, the prime minister was caught on a hot mic, I think, saying that we would never meet our 2% commitment to NATO. Um, and in the latest budgetary statements, we've actually cut defense. So, you know, the prime minister's sort of um, desire to talk about gender rights and environment and and uh that that sort of uh, that sort of discourse is really not uh, fitting when the world is worried about you know the conflict in the middle east a terrible terrible uh, iranian back destruction and death the horrendous situation in ukraine and uh, the potential for a third front and what i guess really would be a, a world war in the indo-pacific and uh you know, I think I think they just don't take Mr. Trudeau very seriously, and he doesn't bring anything to the table. So, you know, these people are all busy, and they're not really prepared to spend too much time talking to our PM. I feel really a lot of regret about that as a Canadian, that uh, we seem to have fallen in the eyes of the world so far, so fast. Boy, and so fast is key here, uh, Charles. Um, uh, we remember uh, Canada's back in 2015, and whenever there were domestic issues at home, he would fly off somewhere and hobnob internationally. But it seems that those... Um, those invites, those those uh, uh, hobnobbing situations, uh, the distractions just aren't there anymore. Nobody's answering the phone. Nobody's picking up the call. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think it's hard to take him seriously. I mean, there was this interaction with the uh, governor of California where Mr. Trudeau pointed out his, I think, Golden Gate Bridge socks and response from the governor was pretty dismissive of the of the whole socks thing. Yeah. I think when he first when we first came into power, you know, there was a lot of thought that Justin Trudeau would be a kind of comparable intellectual leader as his father was mm. and would gain a lot of soft power and respect for Canada um, that, uh, you know, we may not exactly deserve because of our size and relatively small um, hard power um, impact because of, you know, just underfunding defense and intelligence for decades. I think that the, one might say the gig is up and they sort of have his number and I, I don't think that uh, that he's seen as someone who can uh, further the condition of Canada abroad. Just too many unforced errors and just a lack of gravitas and uh, and vision to be a, a foreign leader, you know, sitting at the table with the big boys. Many have said he's taken the once great left of center liberal party and taken it to the extreme left. Now we're hearing of divisions within his own party on the extreme left, position, uh, particularly in position of, uh, of Palestinians and and, you know, even getting a really a slap down from Netanyahu about comments he had made on social media. It seems that uh, the extremists in the party are are are, are getting his ear. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, that shouldn't be happening. I mean, he's a leader. He's supposed to lead. And we get so many contradictory uh, signals out of Mr. Trudeau and out of his cabinet, who, you know, presumably followed the instructions of the prime minister's office under our current system. You know, this, this looks bad when he's trying to play uh, both sides of the room. And we really need a strong statement of exactly where Canada stands and and uh, why. And we're not, you know, we get 
we get defense for Israel one day and then uh, and then uh, attempts to to suggest that Israel isn't doing the right thing the next day. And I think the fact that uh, in the midst of all of this, the prime minister of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, has taken the trouble to send out a scathing uh, mm. denunciation of the prime minister really suggests that, you know, things are, are pretty bad and he, he needs a lot better advice and needs to take it. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Great to speak with you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Canadian foreign policy and how our government is handling its response to the Israel-Hamas conflict in Gaza is coming under question. Some saying we're getting conflicting information from uh, the Prime Minister, who really over the course of time has has picked wedge issues to win elections, what have you, whether it's uh, vaccines, whether it's uh, gender, whether it's um, um, climate change, and now has moved to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, has moved to India, and now the situation with Hamas and Israel, the conflict uh, that is going on there, seemingly trying to uh, divide and then play both sides of the fence doesn't seem to be working uh, for the prime minister. And um, in his uh, latest uh, condemnation of the actions of Israel, it's uh, drawn strong, uh, uh, a strong response from the Israeli prime minister. And um, uh, and that's that. So uh, many are asking why the Prime Minister is giving conflicting uh, uh, statements between him and his party and such, and is it, uh, uh, you know, different factions within his party who are becoming divided and giving conflicting information? Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, specializing in British foreign policy, Canadian policy as well, and from the University of Toronto. Jack, Thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. Your thoughts on um, where the prime minister is now on the world stage. Many times when things would get tough here, he'd take off and, and dance around the world stage and such. And it appears that he doesn't have a lot of credibility there as well. Why do you think he's he's found himself in this dilemma right now? Well, he's a very undisciplined politician, <clears throat> Perhaps in his background as a teacher, but he can't resist the impulse to lecture people, even when his lectures are unwelcome. <clears throat> and he's given Israel very unwelcome lectures on the laws of war. Why does he seem to be playing both sides of the street here? Many have suggested that he's taken the the, the once money uh, once mighty left of center liberal party and taken it to the extreme left, uh, thus inviting the extreme element of the party to come forward. And now he appears to be conflicted as to who to represent. Yeah, I think he has empowered the hard left, and he's not uh, not a savvy enough politician to uh, manage them well. <clears throat> He's echoing some of their talking points, and as a result, he's put himself in the unusual position of being disliked by people on almost all sides of this issue. Who are his allies at this point? Who does he have left? Very few. I, I know plenty of lifelong liberals who are, uh, are wishing, that he, wishing to see the back of him, would be reluctant to vote for him again, and just wish he would go away. So it's hard to see where his uh, 
ongoing support goes. Although structurally, it's just difficult to remove a sitting leader of the Liberal Party who wants to remain. Uh, what about at the APEC summit? Um, obviously, India and China, many wooing them for obvious reasons, trade and such, yet uh, obviously uh, we're not in the best, uh, don't have the best relationships with either of those countries uh, right now. Back in 2015, it was Canada is back, and specifically that was on the world stage. Uh, uh, do, do people just stay away from him now? They just don't take him seriously? It's not credible? How is that change? Uh, they don't take him seriously. I mean, there's, there's a long list of missteps by Justin Trudeau, from the uh, the costume trip to India, to the Nazi in uh, in Parliament, to the mishandling of the uh, Indian, uh, the recent Indian uh, contretemps, to uh, the latest uh, statements on on Gaza. He can't resist shooting off his mouth even when he shouldn't. And he's and and that lack of discipline often lands him in a situation where he has uh, no logical allies at all. Is the party uh, seemingly divided on these issues? Is is that at the center of this? The core. That is part of it, but the uh, the Liberal Party has always been a broad tent party, encompassing a variety of views on uh, on even the most contentious issues. And one of the marks of a successful leader is the ability to bridge those divisions, to keep everybody more or less uh, marching to the same tune. And it's a gift that seems to have deserted Justin Trudeau quite conspicuously. How does he, uh, where does he draw the line here? Uh, for me, this is uh, less about Palestinians versus Israelis, religion versus another religion, left versus right. It's about freedom and democracy versus authoritarianism and terrorism. Why can't the prime minister hit that angle and, and move in that direction as opposed to dividing? I think he is to some extent the prisoner of a woke ideology that uh, divides the world into uh, oppressors and oppressed, and that as a result he finds it difficult to uh, decide with Israel as unambiguously as uh, as one would wish, or as the uh, merits of the case demand. Uh, he's um, he's lecturing Israel on the laws of war, when the fact is no military on the planet goes as far as the Israel Defense Forces in trying to comply with those even under very difficult circumstances. Rather than picking a fight with Israel, why not try to find a solution into how Palestinians separate themselves from Hamas? Because that seems to be the problem here. We can't identify who is what here when it comes to freedom versus authoritarianism. Um, why, why can't we look at it through that lens? Well, maybe we... maybe. Uh Maybe we could if we were less inclined to neatly divide everyone into oppressors and oppressed. Yeah. I think part of the problem here is that we're simply not a major player in the Middle East. We don't have a lot of assets in the region. We don't. It's not uh, terribly significant to us economically. We're not a geostrategic player. Uh, so uh, nobody is in a position with, with, with us where we have uh, significant leverage. We're not able to uh, to put forward serious proposals for a, a solution because we have no leverage with anybody. Has his divide and conquer attitude finally caught up with him? I think it has. Uh, the, there was a poll this morning showing that seventy uh, percent 
of the electorate is tired of Justin Trudeau, and more than half wish he would go before the next election. And I think that's a reflection of uh, of exhaustion over his uh, over his way of approaching issues, over his uh, mishandling of the economy, over his bungles in foreign policy. Uh, and I and I don't think he's uh, got the advisors around him who are savvy enough to get him on the uh, on the right track to uh, to redemption. Although that would be very difficult anyway, since fourth mandates are incredibly difficult to win in Canadian politics. Dr. Jack Cunningham with his PhD program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. All right. If history is any indication, the federal liberals won't likely bounce back from the depths they have reached. That's what Lauren, uh, Lawrence Martin argues in his latest piece for the Globe and Mail. It is entitled, If History Has Any Indication, the Trudeau Liberals Are Doomed. To talk more about all of this, Lawrence Martin is with his public affairs columnist with the Globe and Mail. And here now, Lawrence, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm good, Scott. Good to be speaking to uh, Hamilton because that's the... Uh town I grew up in, my hometown. All right, and it's, I'll tell you right now, Lawrence, it's swinging this weekend, man. There is lots going on if you want to come back and, uh, and enjoy the Cray Cup festivities. Lots going yeah, on in the city. Fabulous time down there. So uh, is this about a best before date being reached for uh, the Liberals and the Prime Minister? Is, you know, time's just not on the side, old, stale, all of that. Or is it the divide-and-conquer strategy has just eventually caught up with them? Uh, if you're the king of the wedge issue, certainly you get wedged, uh, certainly eventually you get wedged out. Well, you know, I, what I was writing was saying was that if you, if you look at the uh, history of Canadian politics, uh, you basically never find another government that's been so uh, low in the polls that uh, goes on to win the, uh, the next election. I mean, uh, with Trudeau's liberals now in, you know, in the mid-20s in a lot of polls, um, you have to go back to R.B. Bennett and the Great Depression of the early 30s uh, to find uh, an equivalent, or Brian Mulroney, actually, in, uh, in the early 90s when, they, when his government plunged so badly that, that, that he, uh, he retired and Kim Campbell came on and the party was destroyed. Um, and so, you know, um, Trudeau faces an absolutely uh, daunting task because not, not only are his numbers so low, but He's been in power so long, eight years already, that people are, uh, you know, the fatigue factor is set in and people want somebody new on account of that, not just because of his policies, but because they're, they're just tired of the guy. So if it's going down, it's going down. Is it worth changing anything or do you keep going in the direction you're going? Hopefully uh, the conservatives will shoot themselves in the foot the way they've done many times before. Is that is that the game plan here? Yeah, the conservatives have done that. Um Polyev is uh, is pretty good at gladiatorial combat, and uh, he's a pretty shrewd uh, political guy. I don't think he's all that popular. He's not. You don't get the sense that Canadians are really, really uh, anxious to have him. I really love this guy. It's just that you know he's the alternative that's out there, and uh, and they want him now. You know Trudeau's got to make up his mind very shortly whether to run again uh, because you know the election. Uh, well, not even two years away maximum, but probably a very good chance it'll be next year. If he doesn't, if he's going to uh, step aside and give a new leader, liberal leader, any time, he's got to do it. Uh, he's got to do it very quickly. 
But you know, uh, Scott, you go through Canadian history and it's really uh, strange. Leaders just don't step down, starting with MacDonald, who kept on running forever, and Laurier mm. kept on running forever, and Mackenzie King kept on running forever, Salaran, Pierre Trudeau, um, Stephen Harper tried to run again in 1915 or 2015 and lost, and uh, Chrétien wanted to stay in forever. These guys just don't want to give up. And you look at all the... All the uh, anger that Trudeau is taking and, you know, the, uh, the the shots that are being taken at him, you wonder why he wants to stick around. So it's a big guessing game here in Ottawa whether he will stay or go. Is it worth cha- uh, picking a new leader or any leaders that they will pick will be tied to the old administration and therefore just wear the same colors? Um, is there any advantage to to trying that option? Well, that's a very good question, Scott. If you look at history, it uh, it, it, it doesn't bode well for uh, for a new yeah. leader coming on at the end of the regime of a of a party that's been long in power. Uh, uh, Pierre Trudeau handed the ball off in 1984 to John Turner, and uh, uh, and uh, right at the last minute, and John Turner, the new leader, was wiped out in the last in the next election, won only 40 seats for the Liberals, as mentioned. Uh, Brian Mulroney uh, stepped down, uh, handed the ball off to Tim Campbell in 1993, and uh, the party fell to uh, was wiped out totally to two seats. So the precedent isn't good. However, even in those instances, uh, a new face initially, Turner, and initially Campbell, showed up pretty well in the polls, but they both ran awful campaigns. So it, I mean, it's I think I think just a new face would uh, take a lot of anger out of the system for the Liberals. Uh, you know. They've got a guy like uh, Mark Carney, the former Bank of Canada, Governor Bank of England governor, mm-hmm. who seems to be interested. And uh, and you know they got they, they got people like uh, uh, LeBlanc and uh, Freeland and Anand and uh, a couple of others who uh, who aren't that bad. Uh, you know who would, uh, as I say, dispel some of the animosity toward toward Trudeau and probably do. I would think better than than he would, uh, unless you know, as we were saying earlier, uh, you know, Poliev uh, makes some big mistakes uh, between uh, now and the election time. Some have said that uh, the prime minister has taken the once great left of center liberal party and driven it right to the extreme left. Now he's having issues with division within the party from some of those on the extreme left, especially in the in the issue of the Hamas Israeli war and such. Is a new leader needed to bring the party back to the center? Is that the solution? Um, well, you see. You got to understand that Trudeau has had to cooperate for his government to survive with the NDP, which of course is further on the left than the Liberals. So, the political reality for him staying in power has driven him to uh, to to be more left of center than he normally would like to would like to be. Um, and so, you know, there are divisions within the party, but uh, there's been worse divisions in the party that I've covered in the past. I don't think that's uh, that's Trudeau's main problem. Nor do I think, you know, um, when you look at other governments who this low in the polls, it was the economy, the, the Great Depression of the early 1930s or the Great Recession in the early 1990s, which are really dragging the governments down. Now, the economy here is not in, in good shape, but it's not nearly as bad as, uh, as those other times. So it's a, it's a wealth of factors across the board, whether being left of center or the economy or is... is uh, actions on foreign policy that have got 
Trudeau in trouble, and just his persona, like I say, that people are are tired of and want change. I mean, uh, the time for a change is a huge ar- argument in, uh, for, for change in Canadian politics, and it's a it's a hard one for uh, for a leader to overcome. It's hard to uh, unfatigue fatigue. Lawrence Martin with us, public affairs columnist with the Globe and Mail, and the latest uh, in the Globe and Mail of history is any indication the Trudeau Liberals are doomed uh, by looking at past performances of uh, all parties. Lawrence, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Have a great, great cup weekend. All right, thank you. We'll say hi to your friends. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator, and he is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Surprised to hear at about 2 o'clock this morning that the HSR had and the city had come to an agreement. Uh, yes, I was actually still up working at the time, and my email dinged, and I got the little <laughs> note. And I... and. Uh, yeah, I, 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 well, you know what? I don't know if it was you and I who talked or if it was on the show, but one of the things that I said, and I, I'm, I'm certainly not alone. I'm not trying to act brilliant here. That's not it. But th- I really believe that this was going to end relatively quickly or drag out for a very, very long yeah. time. And it, it was the, the former, not the latter. And that's good because, you know, let's get them back on. And, and it's good assuming Scott, and I haven't seen anything yet. Maybe you have. I don't think it's out there though. No, no. Waiting to see what the concessions were that got this to end. And assuming the city didn't absolutely and completely capitulate to every demand, because I don't think that would be fair to the taxpayers, then absolutely great that it's back and going again. Uh, it was interesting. We were talking to Eric Tuck yesterday and, uh, the mayor had put out a statement saying, you know, we've been trying to get a hold of these people three times to come to the table. And of course the union wouldn't come to the table unless they moved on, uh, wages and such. And if they weren't going to talk about that, there was no sense talking. And I remember saying to Eric yesterday, like, isn't it your job just to sit there, even if you're staring at each other and just look at each other, breathe until you come to some sort of an agreement? Like, how can you, how, how can you come to an agreement if you're not at the table? And then blammo, two o'clock in the morning, bingo, uh, here we go, we got something. Well, I don't think that that kind of thinking, I mean, I, I, your point is well taken for sure, but early on. I think I was instrumental in solving this issue. Oh, absolutely. That's what I'm I mean, <laughs> in, if you look in the small print of the press release, it says, this is courtesy yes. of Scott Thompson. Correct. Um, but no, I know, I mean, at this point, this early on, I don't think there is the, there was, I don't think there was the overwhelming urgency to say, we will go and do what you say, just sit there and stare at each other to make something happen. I think there was still, these were still early days. So something clearly had to, I would guess, had to have moved on that salary issue. Now, if we're talking, if this had been a month or two or three down the road, absolutely then what you just described would be the case. You go into the room and you don't leave and they bring in bread and water and you don't That's leave right. until they something tie is resolved. the table. Yeah. Yes. No, no. But early on, I, I don't think anybody was feeling that level of urgency. Uh, you've written quite a column today, uh, the Hamilton mayor's surprising first year in office. And surprisingly, you're quite supportive. Well, I, I have, like a lot of people, I really wondered what kind of mayor Andrea Horvath was going to be because we certainly knew her political background better than, and as I write, we, we, we knew more about her political background than any other person who ever took office as mayor of this city, I would argue. And so I think myself and an awful lot of people wondered, was that, 
was the NDP, longtime NDP leader, Andrea Horvath, who was going to be the mayor, governing far from the left and doing everything far, far, far on the progressive side of things. And where I've been impressed with her is she has taken a centrist position, very much so. And if you look at her voting, she has not always been voting with the progressive group on council. She's mixed it up. She's about half and half actually with the more right-wing group on council. Now, all that said, all that said, as I say at the end, there's three years left and there's an awful lot of challenging things that still have to be done. So I think she has found a, a, a spot in the middle, which is a good place to be. She's not governing from the extreme, but there's still an awful lot to do. And this is the first barometer. There's, let's see before she gets judged and before we decide whether she's a good mayor or not a good mayor, let's see what she does and what her, what the council she oversees. Let's see what they do with taxes, with encampments, with homelessness, with all these gigantic issues that are still facing them. Uh, you know who I think is, uh, equally done a job of bringing the discussion to the center. Who's that? Doug Ford. I thought you were going to say Scott Thompson. No, strike yeah, solver. Of course, yeah, yeah. of course, it's me. Um, but no, I mean, you got the Fraser Institute screaming and yelling that they're spending too much money, uh, more money on education, more money on health care, uh, the about face on the green belt thing. Uh, I think he's leading more to the center than any other conservative we've had in 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 years and decades, and and maybe on the other side too. One of the ironies of politics, it seems these days, is that. We, we seem to believe that we're supposed to like all the politicians, like everybody, no. No, but it, you, I think there's a point to be made that if everybody is a little upset with you, yeah. you're probably governing, as you say, in the middle. And I think that, you know, you're right. Uh, th there are people who are upset with Doug Ford as you're talking because he's spending too much. There's people upset certainly with Doug Ford for a lot of other things that he's done. You're never going to have everybody like you. So if everyone is a little miffed, is that a success? I, and I, I think you could make the same argument about Andrea Horvath. Those who elected yeah. her thinking that she was going to be progressive far left Andrea are probably saying, well, who did we elect? This is not what we voted for. But those who voted for something else, maybe fearful, are glad she's not that, but still looking at things like their taxes and other things and going, well, wait a sec, what's going on? If everybody's a little perturbed, maybe that's a positive sign for you. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great show, Scott. Thanks for the time. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This last word from Orville. Someone has been driving around town blasting Shaggy for everyone to hear. And to paraphrase Shaggy himself, it wasn't me. Oh.